We're continuing in the sermon series through the Ten Commandments, focusing this morning on the third commandment found in Exodus 20 at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Um, Before we ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and hearing of His Word, let's read together the instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism printed in your bulletin. What is idolatry? Idolatry. Let us pray together. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. By the grace of your Spirit, give us understanding that we may love your commandments. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Cause us to walk in your ways and to keep your commandments. For in your light do we see light, and your faithfulness endures to all generations. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I invite you now to open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, for the Gospel reading, which will begin at verse 16, which is um, midway into this narrative of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well of Samaria. The story may be familiar to you. Jesus is passing through the region of Samaria where where Jews uh, were not to pass through because of the enmity between Samaritans and Jews. Nevertheless, uh, Jesus was there. In addition to which, He did something that a Jewish man was not supposed to do, and that is to speak to a woman, particularly a Samaritan woman, and He asks her, for a drink of water, in which, uh, after which uh, a, a conversation ensues. This was Jesus' way of engaging the woman. At which point, Jesus says at verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I 
who speak to you am He. And now unto Him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by His blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. So now as we address the third commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. I want to let you know where we're going so it'll be a little bit easier for you to follow. First of all, we're going to do a little bit of review about those non-physical idols that we might carve in our own minds or hearts. And then we're going to address the, 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 the issue of real physical idols. And then we're going to make our final application concerning the true worship of God in accordance with His Word. Worship in spirit and in truth because in our Reformed and Presbyterian tradition and the history of our interpretation, this is where so much of the emphasis actually falls dealing with the third commandment. What does it mean that, that the third commandment really calls for God's people to worship Him in the way that He has prescribed in the Word of God and not by some um, imaginations or devices of our own making. All right? So, last Sunday, this is review, we began to look at the second commandment. That sermon is available on the website site or by podcast, um, we considered the idols, the carved images of our day, carved in our hearts and our minds and our souls, idols to which we are inclined to bow down and serve, such as, you can name them, money, sex, power, prestige, social standing, family, children, government, nation, physical fitness, beauty, comfort, work, leisure, luxury, but most of all, me at the center of the universe. Now, in the concluding verse of the first letter of John, we didn't read it, but in the, the concluding verse of the first letter of John, the, the elder Apostle John gives this warning. He says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What a, what a statement of love. Little children. He's talking to his, his congregation and all those who would be reading his letter. Keep yourselves from idols. And he wasn't speaking of physical idols. He was speaking of anything that would take the place of Jesus Christ in our lives. And, and by the way, the immediately preceding verse is this. Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. Keep yourselves from idols. His point was simply this. The Son of God has come into the world... The image of the invisible God has walked upon the earth. He is the one and the only one through whom we have eternal life. In Him is life. It cannot be sought anywhere else. It cannot be found anywhere else. So don't be led astray by any false substitute 
as we said last time or two weeks ago, don't go looking for love in all the wrong places. Don't seek to worship God in any false way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So, beware, little children, of false idols that you might carve in your heart. But with regard to the second commandment, what about literal physical objects? Of worship. Now, is there any danger for us? Well, you know, it's just a matter of our fallen human nature. You may remember that as soon as Moses came down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, the Israelites were dancing around the golden calf. Think about it. These were the people who had just walked through the Red Sea as on dry land. And before Moses could come down the mountain, they're They're making an idol, a golden calf. And then throughout Old Testament Israel's history, the Israelites were prone again and again to adopt the pagan religions of the surrounding nations and set up pagan altars of their own. And the Lord didn't look kindly upon it. As He says in this commandment, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Israel was His bride. The church is the bride of Christ. We go flirting with other gods? Yes, He's a jealous God. Not with sinful jealousy, but with holy jealousy. And He does not look kindly upon it. It's no no wonder that we discover in the Old Testament with regard to idolatry that the Lord makes the analogy to adultery. That's right. In the Bible, idolatry is adultery, spiritual adultery. It's no wonder that the prophets condemned idolatry and spoke of it as whoring after other gods. Pardon the biblical language. But what about today? Well, today there are various forms of idolatry and other religions and spiritual practices. There's astrology, the use of charms, amulets, crystals in New Age spirituality, or the images of the multitudinous gods of Hinduism, which for whatever reason seems to be growing in popularity in the United States. It's all very popular today, and um, you know, Aspen, Colorado is recognized as one of the most intellectually enlightened elitist progressive communities in the United States. And as Catherine and I recently wandered through uh, the Saturday downtown market, which I enjoyed very much, um, I noticed at least three vendors selling their objects for various pagan practices in the most intellectually enlightened little village in the United States. There it is. There you have it. Well, but what about folks like us? I do not suspect that any of you are practicing idolatry in that way. But you know, here's the thing. we got to be careful because I have known of Christians who in a way perhaps unaware, 
nevertheless, in a way, have had their own religious superstitions attached to objects of faith. Whether a, a special sentimental cross or a crucifix or a necklace with the image of a saint on it that was supposed to bring protection or other good favor? What's that about? I mean, when there really is a kind of faith, a kind of faith or superstition placed in that object as a means of or as a conduit of God's presence and power, then there's a problem. We've got a problem. Like, you, you've got to remember to wear it, or you feel very secure if you don't have it. That's a problem. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that a Christian ought never to wear a cross or a fish, ichthus. I'm not saying that. Such things can be a means of quietly identifying ourselves as Christian. We just better make sure that our behavior and our speech correspond to our jewelry in that case. But the point is that if we're not careful, even Christian adornment can become a kind of superstitious idolatry. So, if that cross simply reminds you, it keeps at the forefront of your consciousness, moment by moment, that Christ died for you, that you have been purchased by His blood, that you belong to Him, that you are wearing His yoke so as to be in His service, that you are called to a life of self-denial, cross-bearing, self-sacrifice to His glory, that your whole life in word and deed is to be a public testimony to His saving grace and power and lordship over all, if your cross reminds you of all that, good. But if your cross is a lucky charm, it is a carved image and a dead idol. Now, now we're going to move in to the next section on worship and particularly our historic Reformed and Presbyterian interpretation and application of the third commandment. We're going to take this prohibition against imagery, idols, to the next level in terms of, well, the appearance of this sanctuary, for example. Our guiding principle for this sanctuary was this. Beautiful simplicity and simple beauty with the prominent pulpit signifying the centrality of the Word. This has been an historic principle of Reformed architecture since the 16th century. And you'll notice that even our stained glass windows, to which some of our Reformation ancestors would have objected because of their historical context, our windows do not present images of biblical persons or of Jesus, or of any other representation which would invite veneration or worship. Now, you may never have thought about this, but, but this is a fact. The visual simplicity, the visual 
simplicity of this sanctuary is due in large measure to our Reformed and Presbyterian historical interpretation and application of the second commandment. Pardon me if earlier I referred to it as the third. I kind of think I did. Second commandment. So that now that leads us to a broader application having to do with how we worship. How can we know the right way to worship God? Your flyer insert with the shorter catechism numbers 50 to 52 with the scriptural references um, addresses these questions. We are to worship God in the way that He, quote, has established in His Word because He is, quote, eager to be worshipped correctly. So one of, the, one of the principles derived from the second commandment is that we're not free to worship God however we please. We're to worship Him according to the instructions and the principles derived from Scripture set forth in His Word. He is in charge of worship. So at this point, I'm moving from the issue of literal physical images forbidden in worship to the broader issue of how we are to worship God in accordance with His Word. When Jesus spoke with the woman at the well in Samaria who inquired about which mountain was the proper place for worship, Jesus answered her by saying that because He had come into the world, true worship would no longer be a matter of geographical location, Mount Gerizim in the north or Mount Zion, Jerusalem in the south. Jesus said, again, referring to the fact that He, the Messiah, had come into the world, Jesus said, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus' words here instructing us to worship God in spirit and truth are in a way a kind of commentary on the second commandment. It has to do with worshiping God in a way that God desires, in the way that God prescribes in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. What does spirit and truth mean? Well, it refers to the whole person, our whole being, heart, and mind. It is an expression which actually parallels the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, your whole being. As we are to love the Lord with our whole being, so we are to worship the Lord with our whole being in spirit and in truth with all our heart, that is our affections, our emotion, our will. It is to be internally engaged in our inner being. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Worship in spirit. And to worship in truth is to worship with our mind filled, instructed, guided, by the truth of God's Word. It will be worship which is guided by the instructions and principles of Scripture, not by our own preferences or our own creative ideas. But the two, spirit and truth, must go together. Worship cannot be only a matter of emotional expression or zeal. 
like the Israelites dancing around the golden calf. They had lots of emotional expression, lots of zeal, lots of energy, lots of creativity. But their worship was not in accord with the truth of God's Word. They were idolaters, worshiping the works of their own hands. At the other extreme, Jesus condemned the Pharisees who purportedly followed the law of God, at least externally, but whose hearts were cold toward God. Jesus quoted Isaiah saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What was Jesus' point? His point was that although the Pharisees were giving lip service to God, going through the motions, their heart, their inner being, was not at all concerned with pleasing God. They were checking the box. They were looking good. but They were spiritually dead on the inside. So again, the broadest principle derived from the second commandment is that we are to worship God as He directs, as He desires in spirit and truth in accordance with His Word. Now, This does not mean that every church has to have exactly the same kind of service, exactly the same order of service, or exactly the same way of offering worship. In fact, cross-culturally, you might be surprised at some of the differences. For example, for example, in Nepal, Christians remove their shoes before going into the sanctuary for worship. They do that for the sake of expressing reverence. So I have preached barefooted in Nepal. But if someone entered this sanctuary barefooted, it would strike us as odd, inappropriate, and irreverent, wouldn't it? But in both cases, there is a common principle at work, isn't there? And it is the principle of reverence. Reverence. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's New Testament language for the Christian church today. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We're not playing around when we come into the presence of the Holy One. We better not be. So whatever the particular setting or context of worship in whatever denomination or non-denomination, if you're in a service of true worship to the living God, there ought to be an evident foundation and an overall environment of reverence in the presence of the Almighty who is holy Holy, holy. Worship is not fun and games. It is not intended to entertain. It is not a pep rally or a motivational seminar by which we boost ourselves and encourage ourselves. If it ever is that, then it is some kind of idolatry. But on the other hand, reverence does not mean that worship should be emotionally dead, emotionally flat. Heaven forbid. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
It is an awesome thing to be in the presence of the living God. It is an awesome thing to be welcomed before His holy throne. It is an awesome thing to join our voices with the voices of angels and saints triumphant singing God's praise in heaven. It is an awesome thing to hear the voice of the Almighty speak His Word from Scripture. And so worship should never be emotionally dead. And you, the worshiper, should never be emotionally flat. How could you be saved from the wrath of God, adopted as a child of God, forgiven for all your sins, united with Christ in His death and resurrection, promised the glory of heaven? How could any of us be flat and listless and stone-faced and unmoved in worship? I sometimes wonder about a few of you. <laughs> I've got a pretty good I've got a pretty good view from up here. What does the scripture say when it calls us to worship the true and living God? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. The Father is seeking such people to worship him who sing His praise in spirit and and truth with praise and thanksgiving. Over and over and over again from the Psalms and other portions of Scripture, we hear such calls to engage in worship with our hearts as well as with our minds, to praise God, to give thanks to God, to express our adoration of God, to give Him the honor and the glory due to His name simply because of who He is, the Lord. There is no other. And worship, therefore, is about Him. It is not about us. And so worship in spirit and truth is worship with reverence and awe, with praise and thanksgiving, with joy and gladness, with repentance and sorrow, and with faith, hope, and love, all directed to the One who saves us by His grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. Any other kind of worship focused elsewhere is some kind of idolatry. But most of all, in order to worship God acceptably as He desires to be worshipped, our worship must be centered on the Word of God. Guided by the Word of God, saturated by the Word of God, pointing to the Word of God written in Scripture. And when worship is truly biblical, it will exalt the name of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, the Lamb upon the throne. That's worship in spirit and truth. We must never, ever forget this simple fact, brothers and sisters, that He, Jesus Christ, and He alone is the reason that we are here. He alone, Jesus Christ, is the only reason that we can dare to draw near to God in worship. It is only by His sacrifice for us that all of our sins of idolatry and false worship are cleansed. When He died on the cross, the veil in the temple was rent asunder from top to bottom because by His blood He had made a new and living way into the most holy place for us. 
And now in resurrection glory ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty where He is seated with all authority and power. Jesus Christ is our great high priest, our mediator, our advocate with the Father. And He is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through Him by faith. And He will come again to take His faithful worshipers home, to live in the presence of His Father for all eternity. And His blessed people, those who have worshipped the invisible God in spirit and truth in this world, will behold the beauty of His face in the world to come forever. Why? Because the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. To God be the glory. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that You love us so much that You speak to us words of truth, words of instruction, words of blessing, that you reveal yourself, you make yourself known to us, that you have given yourself to us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name that your word, by the power of your Spirit, will do its work in our hearts and our minds, that our lives might be more more and more transformed into the likeness of Jesus, our Savior, to the praise of your glorious grace, now and forever. Amen. In response to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout history and the world, as we say together, the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended.